Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers, here with Akash Pound and Steve O'Neill to discuss the uh, outcome of the uh, 2019 general election. Welcome, Akash. Thanks very much. Welcome, Steve. Thanks. So, Akash, first of all, what happened in the election? Well, where to start with that? So, uh, well, we were just discussing before we went on air... Uh, the moment when the um, exit poll flashed up and I was here actually at the Institute for Government with colleagues and um, the shock in the room and I guess across the country too was uh, audible and, and palpable. I mean, nobody expected uh, such, a, such a decisive uh, victory for the Conservatives. Um, huge gains for them, of course, um, primarily in England, did quite well in Wales as well, but particularly um, knocking lots of bricks out of Labour's red wall in the Midlands and Northern heartlands. Um, Labour's vote held up, of course, um, in Remain areas much better, even gained one seat, of course, in leafy West London in in Putney, um, and they did okay in other sort of Remain student-type uh, cities across, uh, across England mainly. Um, and then the other big story of the night was the um, SNP, um, huge success for the Nationalist Party, winning um, 48 out of 59 seats and immediately um, putting back onto the agenda the question of Scottish independence. So uh, we clearly set up for some big battles over the coming year, both as uh, Brexit goes through, presumably finally, but then we enter into the next phase of the negotiations with the EU, um, and while domestically uh, battle will rage over the future of the UK Union. Steve? This election's a disaster for moderates, isn't it? Well, it might be, it might not be. Um, part of that depends on what kind of a moderate you are. If you're the kind of Blairite liberal centrist who hates Brexit, yes, this is a disaster. Brexit is going to happen now. Um, if you are more of someone who is a moderate in the sense that you want the country to come together, that you don't want the kind of instability, well, maybe there are some silver linings for you. Maybe having a majority government of some sort is better than a chaotic hung parliament. Uh, maybe the fact that the more extreme elements in the Labour Party have um, had their sort of tails handed to them in this election might give you cause to, to hope that Labour might be a more centrist party uh, down the line. So silver linings, but with with Brexit uni, um, uh, looming and uh, the issues the, around the union that Akash mentioned, uh, um, it's certainly not a great day for moderates. But as you say, I mean, with the, the Conservatives' big majority does mean that for the first time since uh, when, I don't know, more, more than a decade, the, the hard right of the Conservative Parliamentary Party aren't really going to have much uh, leverage, actually, over the, lever over, over, over the leadership. That kind of assumes that the new intake are more moderate than the ERG, which we have absolutely no way of knowing whether... I mean, bear in mind that they've won a lot of these seats off leave voters in leave areas with a specific pledge to get Brexit done. I think it's likely that the ERG will have less of a, um, and the ERG types will have less leverage, but we can't necessarily take for granted that the, the new intake will be more moderate. Yeah, that's, that's a totally fair point. I mean, it's clearly a uh, much more united party on the principle of Brexit. Mm. Um, and there's going to be obviously a majority for 
um, his deal, but we can at least rule out a no deal Brexit, mm. um, which until pretty recently was, 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 was a serious possibility. All right, so what kind of Brexit should we expect now? I mean, it looks like Boris Johnson's deal, or the government's deal, as it was headed by Boris Johnson, it looks like that's going to pass. In fact, I've heard that it was um, almost a pre-election whipping manoeuvre that new candidates to BMPs had to uh, sign up to Johnson's deal. So it looks like that's, that's going to pass. I think it would be something pretty extraordinary if it didn't. But what else can we tell about the shape of a Brexit in the future? The deal, as you say, that's uh, pretty much nailed on to go through now. He also doesn't have to worry about uh, the DUP anymore, um, which is convenient for him. And w w whether this is um, sort of destabilizing for Northern Ireland, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but um, the deal, uh, once that goes through, of course, then just leads into the, the next phase of the, the negotiation. So what's the, the, the future EU-UK um, trade and wider relationship going to look like and i mean i guess you know there is a there is a school of thought uh, that thinks that once we are actually out we are no longer part of the eu as of uh, 11 p.m on 31st of january um might boris pivot to a softer brexit kind of line as far as um, yeah, how, how closely aligned he's willing ultimately to, to be to, um, to EU trade and regulatory policy. Yeah, and that, that does strike me as a question. And just sort of thinking it through, it's going to depend on uh, how important a few things are that we haven't probably seen yet. So one is, Martin, you mentioned how, uh, how, what, how moderate is the intake that's come in? How moderate are they going to be on Brexit and compromising? Or, or do they have more EIG-aligned views and want quite a hard Brexit or can actually... Is it very easy for Boris Johnson to sell them a, uh, a fairly soft Brexit? The other thing, of course, is that if he moves a little bit to a softer Brexit, what does that mean for the Brexit party or the apparently to be renamed Reform Party? Do they become a factor again? And how worried are, are they about that for five years' time? Um, and then what does Boris Johnson want to do? He made a lot of noises around hard Brexit but to become leader. Um, does, is he comfortable? Maybe he is comfortable with changing that significantly. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there's... There's certain lines he won't be able to cross just because of the, the political reality of, of what he's uh, stood for and um, where his party is. So we're not going to be inside the customs union or, or, or the single market. Like that, Those things are, are clear, so, and that means that freedom of movement is going to end, um, and that's obviously a huge symbolically important issue for the Brexit side. So I think, but I think as long as he delivers on those high profile, um, in symbolically important things, he might have a bit more room for manoeuvre when it comes to the detail of the trade negotiations. And a few trade deals talking of symbolic victories, I'm sure that um, there will be a rush for the government to be able to point to a particular trade deal that they've done with, with America um, but maybe, you know, somewhere else there's been talk, but not really behind the scenes, but there's been talk of talks ongoing with sort of Asian countries and places other than America to try to get trade deals. So this could be something that is, I'm sure, of enormous symbolic importance to the party and the government to be able to say, we've left the EU, we've got a trade deal with X, Y, Z and blah, 
what a good government we are, what a good Brexit we've done. Yeah, I think over the course of the Parliament, they'll certainly want to um, secure a few important trade deals to, 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 so they've got a story to tell at the next election of how global Britain is making, uh, making the most of this opportunity it's got to strike its own way in the world. But, but everyone knows that the most important deal is going to be the deal with the EU because the EU is going to remain our main global uh, yeah. trading partners. All right, well, we've talked about it, we've touched on it. Let's go into the union. So what, how are the Conservatives going to deal with the twin issues of Scotland and Northern Ireland? So as far as Scotland's concerned, um, this is going to be a big issue over the next few years for sure. Um, so we already mentioned um, the Scottish government is now riding high on its uh, the SNP success last week and is adamant that there is a mandate for a second independence referendum. I mean, they're actually saying that should take place next year, which strikes me um, as unrealistic. Um, it's, it's, it's going to take longer than that to agree on uh, agree on the deals and, and, and the timetable for a referendum and holding a referendum on independence when the UK is just negotiating the terms of its future relationship with the EU strikes me as, as quite ill-advised as well. Um, but in the end, I think either um, the UK government comes up with a, a strategy uh, for the union, maybe more powers for Scotland, maybe something more like a federal relationship um, that actually persuades a significant number more uh, people in Scotland that, you know, it's best to stay within the UK um, or else another independence referendum is going to happen because Westminster can say no, yes, they, that's what they're going to do in the short run. But in the long run, I just think you can't run a union on the basis of Westminster telling Scotland you're going to stay in whether you like it or not. I mean, that's just a recipe for absolute chaos as far as I can see. I think this hopefully will, there will be lessons learned about referendums and the SNP's uh, sort of shadowing of the people's votes campaign of the idea of that you vote and vote and vote again until you get the right answer and then no more referendums. I mean, there has to be an issue of political fair, surely, that we had less than, I'm oh, sorry, just over five years ago, we had a referendum on Scottish independence that was once in a lifetime. And I think Personally, it seems to me that there is a political argument to so say, if you have them, you can't keep having them until you get the answer that you want. That seems in the same way that the Brexit referendum and the people who would, who would like to overturn it because they, they think people got the wrong answer the first time. But and, and Sturgeon was very specific during the campaign to argue that the whole principle of Scotland having a referendum when it wants, and I assume she means it wants, depending on whether it, SNP has the number of MPs or SNPs. Um, and uh, so her, that her sort of argument is very much that she seems to be able, would be able to have a referendum regularly, as you say, until they become independent, um, which, which slightly undermines the, the previous argument, which I understood to be that because Scotland, which voted Remain, was taken out of the EU by the UK leaving the EU, then it had a case to want to be independent. Now that supposes they can then rejoin the EU or whatever, which is far from certain, but that makes sense. Whereas she seems to be moved that position to, we want to do it whenever, just because Westminster's wrong for us, which 
seems like a difficult argument to take, but maybe with the public who aren't paying quite such close attention, it might work. Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, since 2016, um, the line has been Scotland voted 62% against Brexit. There's no mandate for Brexit in, um, in Scotland, and therefore Scotland ought to have the right to, to decide whether to, to leave the UK in order to remain within the EU. But as you say, I mean, now Scotland is going to be taken out of the EU next month with the rest of, uh, rest of the country. Um, but Sturgeon's um, certainly pushing for a referendum as soon as possible anyway, as well as having control over the power to hold more referendums in future. Um, which I think, yeah, I mean, nobody's going to want, um, as you say, Martin, kind of, repeated votes every few years um, if Scotland continues to vote no. Um, so that wouldn't be a very um, appetising prospect. But I do think that it's a, it's, a, it's a credible argument that the circumstances have changed significantly since 2014. Yes, it was only five years ago. Um, but such a big part of that campaign in 2014 was the argument by the unionists that if you vote for independence, you're jeopardising your place within uh, the European Union and Scotland will be outside of the single market. And, and that, was a, that was a core argument made by the British government, by David Cameron and, and the other unionist leaders. And that's, for me, uh, actually quite a good rationale for saying, well, you know, the basic constitutional context is now going to change so fundamentally that I think if, if there's a majority in Scotland in favour, um, I think in the end that'll have to be respected. All right, well, let's move on to domestic issues. So there is a big question about whether the Tories can live up to their promises to um, increase public spending on health and education. And something that is a little bit, um, will be good to see how this plays out is the promises to rebalance the economy away from London and the South East. So a lot of people were said to have lent their votes to the Conservatives, one, to get Brexit done, but also with their promises to do something about the sort of structural inequality of the UK. Um, how do we think these things are going to play out? I think, yes, there's a, a kind of clear question about how much the Tories have and will change in terms of their economic platform, which has, um, over the last sort of decades, been fairly uh, non-interventionist, free market. And then new music now is that they might want to change that in order to, you say, rebalance the regional inequality. Um, I'm not sure I'm familiar enough with their manifesto plans to really say. My broad impression was that, that it was more new music than significant plans for, for investment. Um, and actually, when you think back to the kind of stuff that Cameron and Osborne promised while promising austerity, they also promised to protect education spending, to protect health spending, and to sort of create a northern powerhouse or insert other kinds of phrases. So, uh, again, I'm not sure how new this all is. I think it's just been re resold in this new context and has worked better this time in those regions. Um, I wouldn't be personally surprised if we see... Uh, big announcements, but not big investment. Hmm. Yeah, so th I think that's 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 good analysis. I mean, they're going to have to uh, push ahead with um, the some of the some of the plans they've already been talking about since since the summer to invest in in the north and, as you say, to sort of 
um, to, to, to give new life to the Northern powerhouse agenda. Uh, that will be partly about money. I think it'll also partly be about um, further devolution, um, you know, maybe, maybe doing more uh, devolution deals in parts of the country that haven't had them uh, so far, like in, around Leeds, for example. Um, more powers maybe for the existing metro mayors. I, I, I do think that that's an important area that if the Conservatives are going to uh, keep together this new electoral coalition that they've, that they've built, um, they're going to have to um, yeah, take seriously this issue of rebalancing the economy. I mean, their manifesto does also talk about um, specific support for uh, rural England and coastal communities. Um, these are sort of areas that have been... Um, often ignored. I mean, most of the sort of strategy of, of, of the last few governments, as far as economic growth has been is concerned, has been very city focused. Um, and of course, it's sort of coastal and rural areas that have, have felt left out and were more likely to vote Brexit and to support UKIP and so on, as far as coastal communities are concerned. So I think they are taking it seriously, but we'll have to wait and see what scale of, of, of money they put behind it, as you say, Steve. There's a piece in the Times saying before the election, the government promised a national infrastructure strategy to spread prosperity to every corner of the United Kingdom, and that is likely to feature in the Queen's speech. So something to look for there. As well as Johnson wanting to close the productivity gap between London and the other parts of the country. Also in there, talk about infrastructure spending as well. That all of this could potentially appear in the Queen's speech which is set for Thursday of this week. Emily? I'm going to say the other side of this kind of uh, red Tory type agenda is the, yes, maybe perhaps moving economically a little bit more to the statist sort of left position, but socially to the right. And so going back to that question, what does this mean for kind of moderately minded voters? Is how, how far do they go with that kind of thing? They've talked a lot about um, uh, prison centres and things like that. Are they going to make those even more draconian than we've seen? Uh, those kind of those kind of things, um, and and that is where some of the appointments like Dominic Raab and Priti Patel and people who have quite strong views on those issues is a little worrying. And that's one of the things that the thing that I'm perhaps more worried about around this Conservative government is is less their economic plan and more what things might get into their social agenda. So even the last Tory government um, under Cameron talked about things like the Human Rights Act. Mm. Um, so it's, it's watching those things too and whether they're going to go maybe economically a bit left maybe socially a bit right yes and I mean you mentioned the Human Rights Act I, I, I think uh, based on the the, the the constitutional proposals in the, in the manifesto it's clear that they do have in mind um, some reforms they haven't spelt them out yet and there's going to be a Constitutional Rights and Democracy Commission they call it that's going to be set up to look into these issues but they, there is um, a desire to um, cut some of the uh, the checks and balances away that um, that that constrain government, um, and obviously the, the the government in the last few years has been frustrated by several rulings of the Supreme Court. Um, the Conservatives haven't liked the Human Rights Act for for a while, as you say, uh, Steve. So so I think there there is going to be an attempt to uh, to change the constitution and, and and basically just put more power back in the hands of the majority party at Westminster, which was, if you like, the, the traditional 
Westminster model constitution, the um, elected dictatorship, as, as, it, as it used to be called, but which has, over the past 20 years or so, um, faced greater checks and balances. But yeah, we might see a bit of a reversal of that. All right, so Johnson claims, and has claimed several times since the election, to be a one-nation conservative. Is he? Is it just sort of window dressing and political posturing? And how does that fit with the um, ruthless and more sort of hardline stances that he and his government take? I was, I was um, thinking back over the course of the campaign and the kind of build up to it recently. And the kind of, in terms of the way that uh, him and his party have acted and conducted themselves, you've got. Uh, avoiding Andrew Neil when you said you were going to talk to him. You've got uh, suppressing the Russia report that came out after the election today. The fake Twitter account, the fact-checking account during the debates. The the sort of sacking or, or taking the whip from moderate MPs around the, the original vote on his deal. Um, and that all came after his leadership campaign where he um, you know talked up no deal and various other things. So uh, that made a lot of people think that he was going to be a quite right-wing and quite... Uh, Authoritarian-style prime minister. So the idea that he's now going to be uh, a much more cuddly figure would, would certainly be a departure from that. I'm not sure. Um, I really know exactly what <laughs> Boris believes in on on a lot of these issues. I, I mean, he did have the reputation um, when he was mayor of London and earlier on in his, his career as being from the liberal conservative. Uh, wing, which I suppose is, is, is a sort of different way of, 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 of describing One Nation Conservatives. He then threw in his lot uh, famously with uh, Vote Leave, even though he was on the fence and wrote his two alternative letters on the position he was going to take. So, um, you know, I don't think he's a deeply principled politician. And I don't mean that quite as um, <laughs> derogatory as, as, it, as it sounds, but... Um, you mean he's more of a traditional Tory? Like <laughs> I think pre- he's pragmatic about, yeah, he, he, he's, he's very interested in his own career, that's for sure, mm. but he's also interested in what, what, what you know, people are going to vote for. Mm. But I think in terms of a traditional Tory being someone who's not particularly ideological, but was very very pragmatic, very willing to dump what they previously supported in favour of what the electorate, you know, supported at that time. So that's how you end up with the sort of the post-war consensus and butzkalism, which was, in fact, mainly the Conservatives carrying on to, to some extent, Labour's post-45 government spending plans. All right, so let's talk about spending plans. So... Tories have promised all of this money for health and and education. Well, first of all, are they going to deliver it? And secondly, what are these services going to then look like? Is there going to be a reforming agenda? With health and education and spending, as we touched on this a minute ago, is that um, one of the reasons that um, parties promise, promise more money for them is that they kind of have to, because you can't keep the same level of service, the same funding. Both of them have, for demographic reasons, an inflation in demand. So just to keep anything like the same service, you've got to put a chunk more money into schools and a lot more money every year into NHS. It's about 7% inflation every year. So in some ways, when you're putting together a manifesto, you know this stuff, you might as well. You're going to have to anyway, or you're going to face some difficulties pretty quickly. Um, so whether this is a real intention that those services will be better funded or just 
an emission of reality. Uh, I, I'm, I would tend toward this as more of just an emission of reality. Um, and so we shouldn't see it really as a big departure from the law, or a big increase on the level of service people are, uh, are seeing in health and education. And if that's the case with health, that could still be a problem because the demands are going to keep going up unless there's some, um, some major action there. Yeah, well, the health and, and social care as well, uh, for, for, for obvious demographic reasons. I mean, I, I think what I would say about that is um, the Conservative manifesto, as has been widely discussed, was was pretty was pretty thin and deliberately so. I mean, they learned a lesson in 2017 when they had some uh, bolder ideas in there that, that blew up in, in Theresa May's face. Um, so they, they obviously wanted to avoid that. They were up against a very radical manifesto on the Labour side. Um, they had the very clear, simple message of get Brexit done, which chimed with a lot of people. And I think they just realised we don't need to spell out in much detail exactly what we're going to do with public services and, and, and wider, the wider policy agenda beyond some headline things about yeah more, more nurses and police and tougher punishment for terrorists and some kind of easy headlining, headline grabbing things like that. So I suspect we'll have to wait and see at the time of the next budget or indeed if there's going to be another spending review at some point. One thing that bothers me is that they focused on more nurses, more teachers, more numbers, when actually I think that might be the wrong priority. I think it probably is the wrong priority that the health and education services need more money, not necessarily just people, not just headcount increases. They need more resources in to the existing services. So I think they might, I think it's probably putting headlines above um, good policy making. Not that a politician would ever do that, but I fear they might have this time. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's absolutely right, and that's what I mean. I think those were those were good lines for for an election campaign. They're good things to put on election uh, leaflets, dropping through people's doors. Everybody likes the idea of more nurses and more teachers and more police. You know, keeping 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 people safe and so on. But you're absolutely right. You know, these services need more than just a bit more money being uh, poured into them. They they may need more fundamental reform. And they'll need to be, um, you know, people will need to think about how to improve performance, not just to spend more money on them. Well, that's something we might have to come back to another day. That there used to be a, a, a large centrist party that were quite big on public service reform and um, performance improvements and all of that, but I don't know what ever happened to them. <laughs> now that the government has a majority, are we back to government functioning as normal again? It's hard to remember exactly what normality feels like, to be honest, in <laughs> Westminster. I don't know about you. Um, it's been years of years of chaos and uh, drama, and it's been quite exciting up to a point. But um, yeah, I think um, what we can be sure of is that um, in Parliament, we now have a government that will be able to get its own way most of the time. Um, and that hasn't been the case for several years, um, for certainly the, the entirety of the, um, this, the, the previous parliament. But even before that, you had a very small uh, majority. And before that, you had a coalition, which didn't always agree on stuff. And there was just a bit more, uh, a bit more uncertainty. Now, yes, it's going to be in that sense, back to the Blair or previously Thatcher days when 
as long as the government and the cabinet reaches agreement on something that is going to pass some legislation or, or, or anything else that it needs to get through parliament, you can be pretty sure that's going to happen. They'll face some problems in the House of Lords, but uh, by and large, um, yes, that, that era of, of parliamentary drama and procedural games is going to come to an end. And also we have a prime minister with enormous political capital to have pulled off a election victory like this. And in the way it's done, you know, I don't think that they get enough credit for their sort of strategic implementation. They sort and actually it's been superb. And so the capital, political capital and authority that Johnson and his leadership team will have has probably not been had by any prime minister because no prime minister has won a large majority since Blair. So Brown had no authority as prime minister. Cameron had a, uh, a coalition and then a small majority, the less said of Theresa May, better. So this is a bit of a break from the recent past. The thing they might lack, though, is bandwidth. If they are dealing with Brexit deal, it's got to happen really quickly. Most of us think it can't happen in the sort of year, really meaning six months, given the EU rules. It's got to happen. They've been a lot of time working on that. The question about the union, do they have time to deal with trifling issues like how our energy sector needs to deal with climate change, uh, how the economy is going to change as technology grows, all these small things that are also mm. in the, all in the government's in-tray. Do they have time to actually get to grips with them? I don't know. All right. Well, I think we should talk about the Labour Party then. Uh, we are always your favourite subject. Absolutely. Well, so we here are a podcast that talks about moderate politics in the centre ground. Labour def- departed the centre ground by quite a distance. And this, this, this election has been a disaster for Labour. Labour's vote share went down in 98% of seats. UK-wide, Labour lost nearly 8% of its total vote share since the last election. Now, I believe that the reason that Labour did so badly was because they retreated from the, the centre ground. And if you look at most elections, they're usually won by the party that scores best on leadership and economic competence, who is trusted on the traditional issues by the, uh, by the public. Now, the NHS was at uh, some points the most important issue, but certainly the most important domestic issue. Uh, in this election, and the Conservatives, the Conservative Party, were trusted more on the NHS than the Labour Party, which it might not be unprecedented, but it must be pretty close to being unprecedented. Uh, A number of polls have shown that the reason people didn't vote Labour was the leadership. Uh, Opinion asked voters why they had not backed Labour when they asked people on election day. 43% said leadership. Only 17% said Brexit, which clearly gives, um, gives a lie to the, uh, the Labour leadership and the momentum line that Brexit cost them this election. Um, the Conservatives were seen as more trusted on a vast range of issues. Labour was seen as a very bad thing for the country, worse than certain things such as Brexit. And with Corbyn having recorded the worst ever ratings for a leader of the opposition, this shouldn't have been much of a surprise. Um, and the Delta poll survey, 60% thought Corbyn incompetent, 
36% saying very incompetent. 24% said Labour and Corbyn are anti-Semitic. 15% that Corbyn is anti-Semitic but not Labour. And only 21%, only 21% of the public thought that the leader of the opposition and the major opposition party were not anti-Semitic. It was 50, uh, sorry, 47% thought that Labour does have a problem with anti-Semitism. And 10% think he's, the reason for this is that he's temp, hostile towards Jew, Jewish people. Quarter think that he has uh, poor judgment. And similarly, 23% think he lacks prime ministerial qualities. And of 2017 Labour voters who didn't vote Labour, half was because it... Uh, they didn't like Corbyn, 20% because they didn't believe the manifesto pledges such as free broadband. And a YouGov poll asked people what they thought about the uh, party's promises and campaigning points in their election. Nearly half thought Labour had a lot of policies, but they were not very well thought through. And in the end, in total, only 20% of people thought Labour's policies were well thought through, which is pretty damning. And Labour's vote share went down in every single region of the UK, in uh, nearly 8% in England, and in strongholds like the North East, it went down nearly 13%. The Conservatives increased their vote share by 4%, 2.5%, 4.5%, 1% here and there. But Labour suffered a terrible, terrible um, dip in its vote share, which as I say, if you're not, it's not surprising when you look at BMG research that says in December over 60% of people were dissatisfied with Corbyn. That um, Corbyn was um, a quarter of people were dissatisfied with Corbyn, sorry, a quarter of Labour Party voters were dissatisfied with Corbyn. 70% satisfied with Johnson, it was 80% of Conservative voters were satisfied. It's just been a, a, a terrible time for the Labour Party. Um, and now the heartlands, what were the heartland, have largely gone. It's been an absolute disaster for the Labour Party, and they've gone a long way from the political centre and moderate politics. So I think it should not be a surprise. Aside from that, though, it was a resounding <laughs> success. <laughs> well, they gained Putney. <laughs> they did gain Putney. Yes, I mean, I think yeah, there's some there's some really interesting uh, findings from 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 those surveys and so on. I mean, on the uh, on the day of the election, um, I was not to. Um, uh, not sure, but I was I was interviewed on Swedish TV <laughs> on the state of the election campaign, and I, I looked through some of the uh, the political trackers, uh, particularly from from YouGov um, and, and and the latest data, and I actually thought shows how uh, how wrong one can be that there was there were some. Uh, there were some actually there were some positive signs in the data uh, for Labour. I mean, I didn't I didn't think Labour was going to win the election, but I didn't think it was going to be as as bad for them as it was because during the course of the campaign, actually, uh, Jeremy Corbyn had had closed the gap a bit with Boris Johnson in terms of uh, satis people's uh, satisfaction with how he was doing his job. 
Um, he was still pretty negatively judged, but he had closed the gap as well. And there was evidence, Martin, you referred to this before, that on issues traditionally seen as more favourable to Labour, like the NHS, like the environment as well, those issues had risen up in terms of what, what was driving people's vote. But in the end, um, yeah, none of, that, none of that helped them. And he was just seen as not a credible leader, not a credible prime minister, um, that combined with very simple and persuasive Brexit message from the Conservatives, get Brexit done, um, and a Labour manifesto that just wasn't seen as, as serious, um, just, just doomed them. Just one final thing on the manifesto. I don't know if you saw, there was a clip from, uh, I can't remember the, the, the company, but uh, a, a focus group that had been run before the election um, to get voters' thoughts on um, the, the, the manifestos. And um, the Labour spending pledges, the broadband, uh, free broadband pledge and, and free dentistry and, and so on, was, was just essentially being ridiculed to the point that one participant said, and I quote, what's next? Free pot noodles for immigrants. <laughs> Which maybe not the most politically correct way of putting it, but I think that captured the view, possibly of of many other Labour uh, potentially uh, former Labour voters who just thought, well, this this party is no longer on on the same planet as us. And that the the leadership have attempted to justify the um, saying that they won the argument, which has worked out fantastically well for the Labour Party winning that argument, which clearly they didn't. It's clearly a lie. But they say that the manifesto was popular. Well, some individual parts of the manifesto were popular. Who wouldn't want to have to work a day less a week? But voters saw that it was impossible to deliver these things, unlikely to deliver many of them individually, but certainly impossible to deliver them all. And so, once again, we can come back to the issues of leadership and competence. And Labour was seen as having a terrible candidate for Prime Minister and incompetent. So it's not a surprise, perhaps, that they lost. The question that seems to be playing out now is how, in the aftermath, Labour disaggregated these things. Whether it was just a Brexit position that kind of flip-flopped and changed into this sort of people's vote position that it hadn't been before, whether it was Jeremy Corbyn, his inability to A, make a decision on Brexit and B, to deal with anti-Semitism or other things in his past that made him seem unelectable, or was it a manifesto that was too radical and too left-wing? And I don't think it's going to be very easy to answer that question. Could you, with a, a leader who gave people trust they could deliver something, who dealt with something like the Brexit issue, which may be gone now, better, could they convince people of an agenda that is quite left-wing? Or would that actually still hit a roadblock? And I don't think we quite found that out, partly because during the election, in some of the debates and interviews that, were, that, that took place, they were about Brexit, they were about his leadership. We didn't really get into the manifesto enough. So I think it's quite hard for Labour to really know objectively what it should do in, very, in a very certain way. And they're going to battle because of their own uh, ideological within the party groups over, over that interpretation. I think one thing we, we need to end on is heartlands. So people said that Labour has lost its heartlands. Indeed, I think I said it a minute ago. Well, actually, if you look at the data, the Conservatives have been doing better than they have in the past, but also better than the Labour Party amongst working-class people, people without degrees, and people in 
what a traditional sort of heavy industry, old labour heartland areas. Actually, places like Blythe Valley, for example, are not necessarily a labour heartland anymore. Labour's heartlands now are pro-Remain, well-educated, diverse places like London. Matthew Goodwin has talked about um, the three tribes that make up the Labour's sort of electorate um, as sort of remained well-educated people, uh, sort of traditional Labour people, workers, and an uneasy alliance, in his words, of students and ethnic minorities. And it certainly seems like one pillar of that sort of triumvirate has been kicked out, but it's been crumbling for a long time. But let's talk about the other party. Steve, Lib Dems, what happened there? Well, it didn't go well. Um, in some ways, it's very similar to what happened to Labour. They're now facing uh, a search for a new leader and a kind of um, investigation to what, what went wrong, which was supposed to be. I mean, just, just wind back to before the election, we had uh, Joe Swinson talking about 100 or 200 seats, depending on which interview we look at, being kind of in play for the Lib Dems. They've ended up with 11, which is very, uh, which is very disappointing from that point of view. Uh, and so the question comes back to what, what went wrong. Um, one interpretation is that it was just a squeeze. Normally small parties get squeezed when it comes to the election. Did that just happen again? That, that will explain some of their dropping the poll. It dropped about 10% from beginning to, to what's happened in the election. That'll explain some of it, but probably not enough. The, the other bits of the debate are how well their judgments have come across. It seems that voters didn't take to her. The question time sort of interrogation she got from uh, members of the audience kind of showed that a little bit. Um, but perhaps the biggest thing is the, the policy on Brexit and to go fully to revoking Article 50 without a second referendum seems to have backfired. Now, I haven't seen evidence to show which of these things was the driving force, but it seems that all three of those factors would have played um, a role in um, what was a very disappointing night. So what, what next for Lib Dems? Do they become the rejoined party? Is there a sort of, what's the strategy for the Lib Dems to become relevant? The, the thought um, of a co-party kind of remain, going back to when Tim, Tim Farron took over leadership, is that there was a space for, uh, a space to build a core vote around being the kind of anti-UKIP or now anti-Brexit party. And Lib Dems for a long time have lacked any core vote. They've always had to fight local, locally to win each seat, whereas the other big parties, Tory and Labour, had core constituency voters. Now, we've discussed a bit how that is now changing a bit, but the idea of having a vote they can rely on was really, really appealing. So becoming this anti-UKIP, kind of this Liberal Remain party. Um, and, that, and that still sort of stands, but what's been shown is that that maybe only gets you a sort of core vote of well, they've got, I think, 11 12% in this election. Maybe it can go a little bit more, but is, is that enough to really, really make gains in the future? And that's the question they've got to ask themselves. The other thing is, now you've gone down this route for three years, can you really credibly turn around and say, well, actually, we're going to soften now, we'll become a, a sort of soft Brexit, sensible, moderate party again, and, uh, and we'll sort of just junk, junk in our kind of remain credentials? And um, I don't think either reality is very appealing. One says you only have quite a small core vote at this rate. The other says you look very, very flighty to voters. Um, one thing I suppose we need to talk about is the what we just said about Labour's new sort of heartlands and core vote being the remain well-educated and diverse. Isn't that kind of the Lib Dems thing as well? And if in order for Lib Dem revival amongst those sort of people, is it necessary for Labour to 
moderate its stance on Brexit and various issues that they think has lost them, or some people think have lost them their supposed traditional heartlands? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the likelihood is that um, one would guess Labour might go to a sort of soft Brexit, criticising what will be a hardish Brexit from the Tories, which would leave a bit more space, yeah, for the Lib Dems to be an even more of a main party, and that would be a nice, clearer divide. And what we ended up with at this election was um, supposed to be a clear divide, but the Lib Dem position was revoked. But if we don't win outright, then people's vote, and Labour's position with people's vote, but um, we won't we won't sort of campaign for Remain, which I think confused people all around. Mm. So maybe they can benefit being the party of sort of rejoin in a situation where Labour are more, uh, are more moderate on Brexit. I mean, I think, yes, we, we, we may see that become uh, an issue. We're just three days after the election. Brexit hasn't even happened. It is now about to happen. I think it's quite hard to uh, predict whether rejoin is going to be seen as a as a credible position um you know six months a year a few years down down the line when the uk is out and that will be the new reality um, there's a psychological difference isn't there exactly. between stopping leaving and rejoining absolutely yeah yeah there's a sort of loss aversion thing isn't there mm-hmm. like at the moment there's there's, there's a constituency of people, obviously not enough of them, <laughs> who were who were who were desperate to, to 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 prevent the the loss of the UK's EU membership, the loss of their EU citizenship. I mean, it felt like quite a personal thing for a lot of people. Um, I don't know, but yeah, I think once we're out, unless it does really go very obviously pear shaped, um, and you know, deal can't be done, we're on hard you know, WTO terms and there's a big recession as a result. And yeah, maybe then union does start breaking up as a result. You know, there are worlds in which people think, oh my God, what a huge mistake. But it may be that um, people just get used to it, frankly. Hmm. There might be a bit of space to, for the short term, for the next year, year or two, be more of a sort of, we're going to be an opposition party, we're going to criticise, and Labour may have this luxury as well. But then if things really do start to go wrong when, once we get into the sort of territory of our future relation with the EU, uh, it's possible we go into recession or something like that. It's possible that's connected to our leaving the EU. It's very hard to say at this point. At that point, maybe a rejoined position doesn't look quite so mad or quite so um, sort of uh, misjudged as it does two days after an election. Yeah. Though we have to ask the EU what they think about that as well, <laughs> whether they would welcome a, an application after the, the years of, mm. of chaos that the UK has already caused. Um, I don't know. My, my money is on, we're not going to rejoin in the next decade. Mm. Maybe beyond that, who knows, the mm. world might be very different. I don't think it's going to come back as well. Yeah. It, it's hard to disagree with that, of course. If you're a Lib Dem strategist, you're are you really trying to, like the People's Vote campaign said it would cause that to happen, or are you trying to make political hay off a desire in some people, mm. even if you know that in reality it's very unlikely you can force that in a coalition negotiation should that ever happen again yeah. or in any kind of parliamentary situation. So um, there's that as well. Yeah, and the problem for the Lib Dems as ever is it's not just they don't have a core vote in, a, in, 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 in demographic or, or whatever terms, but they don't have areas where they are the the dominant party as they did to some extent until a few years ago in the southwest and so on so even if they yeah even if even if they increase their national share a few percentage points with a with a with a rejoin strategy or something 
they're still going to struggle to break through in, in terms of in terms of seats and getting attention. The big question is always: Can you cut through the media and political folks in the government and the main opposition party? Why are people talking about you? And since the coalition finished in 2015, that has been a huge problem. The only point at which they had a little bit of a look in was around this kind of being the party of remain issue for a brief window. Um, and other than that, what else can they talk about is a really hard question. They need to be thinking on it. It seems, given that Labour's gone off to the extremes, that there should be a moderate centre-left, sort of space for a moderate centre-left party, but they haven't uh, made the most of that. But I think I want to just finish on one, one thing, which is about democracy. I live in a safe state, and we've seen an awful lot of safe seats fall in this uh, recent general election. I'm going to say that that's a good thing, because I think it's a bad thing for democracy to have safe seats and wastelands in where parties basically just don't exist. Um, and I think I'm going to finish on a positive note with that. Isn't it good that some of these places have seen democracy rather than being effectively one-party states for a long time? Yeah, and I agree. And I think the reason for that is people are starting to switch their vote. And that's what we want too, is people have a feeling they have... Uh, they may not think they've got the greatest choice in the world, but, but that actually making a choice and being willing to change can long-term only be a good thing, I think. Mm. And hopefully keeps parties on their toes. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree that um, setting aside what you might think of the, the particular parties involved, like as a general uh, function of, or feature of democracy, um, having safe seats, having heartlands that for decades only ever vote one way and are therefore very easy to ignore... Um, and I think that's that's that, that's not a good thing, and that's that's what's happened. And it shows that in the end, uh, realignments and rebalancing does happen. I mean, it happened in Scotland sooner. You know, Labour that was a that was a proper Labour heartland right up until um, well, at the Scottish Parliament level a bit earlier, but in Westminster terms, even in 2010. Labour won a, won a large majority of seats there, and that absolutely crumbled because people felt like Labour Labour was was taking them for granted, and we've seen that to some extent now in other parts of the country. Ian Martin, the Times columnist, finished one of his pieces recently with, "Wouldn't it be a good outcome of Brexit if it meant that the Tories now had to take great account of what people in the places like Blythe Valley were saying?" Maybe a Labour Party wishing that they'd taken more account of what the people in Blythe Valley were saying, rather than embarking on a um, extremist course under Corbyn. Steve, thank you very much. Akash, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Please, if you have enjoyed it, tell your friends, share it far and wide. We need to get as many listeners as we can. In the meantime, thank you very much and goodbye.